Hi, welcome back to DC EKG, part of the Big Wig Media Podcast Network, distributed by our partner Evergreen. I'm Joe Grogan, along with Eric Euland, uh, back again to have a conversation this time with Tyler Goodspeed, uh, one of the smartest guys you can find anywhere to talk about economics. He's former acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and a member of the Council of Economic Advisors. He is currently uh, working from California, maybe he'll tell us where, and he's been an advisor to presidents and uh, foreign governments as well. So Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you, Joe. Good to see you. So before we get started and talk about uh, your recent experience in England and your take on some of the economic and political developments there, I thought maybe you'd just give us a little bit of overview on your education and where you're working now. Sure. So I'm now based in Palo Alto in California at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. So my my better half and I moved out here in February 2021 from D.C. And before moving to D.C., we lived in the U.K. for the better part of a decade. So I did my a PhD in economics at Cambridge University in the UK. Also picked up a master's in the UK at Cambridge in economic history. Uh, was jumping back and forth across the pond because I also did a PhD in history at Harvard University where I did my undergraduate studies in econ, econ and history. And then my first teaching appointment after getting the PhD was in the Faculty of Economics over at Oxford. So I've sort of been crisscrossing the Atlantic for uh, over 10 years now. And just for those uh, people who aren't familiar, and this is going to be personally humiliating, but can you just mention how old you are for people who don't uh, know you? Sure. So I just uh, I just last month turned 38. There we go. So... <laughs> Happy birthday. Sorry, <laughs> that, Joe. That makes me feel uh, so old and like a tremendous underachiever. But uh, it's really great to have you here because I always love talking with you, love talking with you when you're at the White House and the few times we've been able to talk since then. And obviously, you've been on uh, TV a number of times uh, since the end of the Trump administration. You always bring great insights into any conversation, and hopefully we can dive into things in a little bit more depth here so let's talk a little bit about what's going on in England. Obviously, uh, Boris Johnson gets pushed out as prime minister, and then we've got Liz Truss is chosen. She unveils a big deregulatory and tax-cutting plan. It, it blows up uh, almost instantaneously, and she is shoved out as the prime minister. I think it's the shortest tenure of a prime minister ever, um, and now we have a new head in Great Britain. Can you talk a little bit about where they were economically that provoked trust to unveil this very aggressive plan, why it blew up, and how you see this playing out moving forward, both both a little bit from the policy side, but also Britain's economy. But we'll get into we'll get into that after you kind of give the background, I think. Yeah. So I mean, first and foremost, I just think it's it's really sad what's what's happened economically in Britain over the past year, and it ought to be a, a lesson for the for the U.S. for U.S. policymakers. So look, UK has a number of structural problems that 
precede the past year, that precede Brexit. They include but are not limited to uh, a very expensive energy because of under underinvestment in domestic energy production and domestic energy storage. It's low labor force participation. It's underinvestment generally in the UK economy. And Tory members, members of the Conservative Party who vote on the next leader of the party, I think kind of got that this that these were all issues for the UK economy. And they've been exacerbated by some of the developments of the past year uh, the past few years, including COVID, including some migration of financial services out of the city of London to the continent. And so what conservative members really voted for when they voted by a pretty substantial margin for Liz Truss, the then foreign secretary, over Rishi Sunak, the recently former chancellor of the Exchequer, they, they voted for a pro-growth agenda, basically. That was, that was what Liz Truss articulated on the campaign trail over a pretty grueling campaign of a couple months with lots of hustings, lots of, of, of debates. And so we get to September and Liz Truss unveils a growth package that includes more permits for drilling in the North Sea. It includes lifting a ban on fracking in the UK. It includes more onshore wind production. It also includes a tax package that it was described as reckless and dangerous and bad and the worst macroeconomic policy we've ever seen since I don't know what. But really all it was was to keep the corporate tax rate where it is today and where it's been for five years, rather than raising it from 19% to 25%. It was to return their payroll tax rate to where it was last year. And it was to return the top marginal personal income tax rate to where it was under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, both labor prime ministers. And then it was to bring forward an already scheduled one percentage point cut in the lowest income tax rate bracket by, can you believe it, one year. And so that you know, it was, it was a pro-growth, a modest pro-growth tax package that had been completely channeled on the campaign trail. Uh, but there were a number of missteps, I think, in terms of the rollout. I mean, they coupled it with sacking the senior treasury civil servant for economic policy, which kind of alarmed markets. They accompanied the rollout with an announcement that they wouldn't have the independent office of budget responsibility provide a forecast and the rollout followed an announcement by the bank of england that they were only going to raise rates by by 50 basis points when they have a, a big inflation problem mm. and then the the then chancellor of the exchequer quasi quartang sort of compounds market uncertainty market alarm by then going on the Sunday morning shows in Britain and saying, oh, yeah, and there's more to come. So I think it was just a perfect storm of insufficiently preparing politicians and the public for for uh, the, the growth package, uh, coupled with missteps by by the bank and missteps and roll up. It was really sad because I think Britain needed that growth package. So, Tyler, thanks very much for for that explanation of the contents, which Definitely don't sound all that radical, although in England and in Europe, the idea of trying to keep tax rates low, I guess, is a fairly radical proposition. My understanding is that the number two at Treasury, Simon Clark, believed that part of this package was going to be an announcement at the same time 
of an effort to reduce increases in spending, but that between the time that was part of the consideration near the end of the campaign trail and the time that Trust became prime minister, spending reductions were dropped out of the announcement of the package. Do you think had the spending proposal been part of the early discussion of this package when it was rolled out in September, that would have helped keep both the markets stable uh, and contributed to trying to keep conservative members of parliament on side on behalf of the trust package? It's a good question. And I think it might have helped. The, 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 the one thing that makes me think that maybe it wouldn't have made, and, and I think it should have been in there uh, just for in terms of long run fiscal sustainability. The one thing that makes me suspect that it might not have made much of a difference is that I'm not sure that the overreact that the reaction of markets, the reaction of the press, the financial press in the UK, I'm not even convinced that it was at the end of the day about the money because most of these tax proposals weren't that big in terms of the static revenue costs. They were, in fact, much smaller than a massive energy subsidy that, that the trust administration rolled out and that the Sunak government has continued. And no one has really batted an eye about the massive spending on, on energy bills. They, they just didn't like the tax cuts. And you know that was this that was a static cost of the tax cuts, which was which was pretty modest. That doesn't even take into account the fact that there was going to be a lot of dynamic revenue feedback from the higher economic growth that would have resulted from those from implementation of those tax plans. So I I think it might have helped to mollify some of the overreaction to the to the trust tax plan. But I actually think it's more it's there's a deeper issue of conservative policymakers or ostensibly conservative policymakers just forgetting the language of supply-side reform and how to sell supply-side tax cuts. Even when they were pitching this, this tax agenda, the way Truss and Quartang would talk about it was about putting money back in people's pockets, which sounds nice, but it's not the, the, the strongest way to articulate a pro-growth supply-side reform. What would you have recommended be a stronger way of pitching pro-growth supply-side reform? Totally taking your point. As well, curious about kind of your your thoughts. If the politicians and the markets reacted so strongly as to toss out, ultimately see the chancellor tossed out, ultimately see the prime minister tossed out, and ultimately see her agenda, pro-growth agenda, replaced with essentially a very status quo approach now with the current prime minister as well as the current chancellor, what does that say about significant policy changes going forward? So in terms of the, the market reaction, it's really interesting to talk to, to, to market participants. And they weren't particularly alarmed by the tax package, by the, by the cost of the tax package. They were alarmed, as I, as I alluded to, by the fact that they, they, they had said, basically, we don't, we don't need, we're not interested in a, a forecast or a costing of this stuff by the independent office of budget, resp budget responsibility, uh, which, frankly, I don't think is such a big deal. I mean, the OBR has been around since 2010, so it's not like this is an august institution that, uh, that, that must be, whose, whose, whose costings must be taken as gospel. And isn't um, it the case Mark here in the United States that... Congressional Budget Office, Office of Management and Budget, Federal Reserve, 
often miss their forecasts and underestimate significant growth aspects of supply side, smart tax cut policy, wise spending control policy. Yes, it's it's a it's a big challenge, and certainly with the OBR, my understanding is that there are a lot of staff on the OBR who come from some left wing think tanks, and they they don't do dynamic modeling, so they do not take into account. They explicitly acknowledge that they don't take into account the the macroeconomic feedback from from higher economic growth resulting from supply side policies. That is why. To answer your second question about what what would I have done differently or what might I have done differently, I would have made sure that that the ecosystem of think tanks in Westminster were briefed and ready to provide cover, provide supporting fire to to the tax plan. Because I think in the United States, when when there's a, a, a major supply side reform, you have a lot of solid well-credentialed, well-respected think tanks, including Heritage Foundation, including uh, the AEI, including the taxpayer, uh, the Tax Foundation, which is a super well-credentialed, super well-respected institution, they are ready with credible estimates of the revenue effects, the growth effects, the income effects of supply-side tax reforms. And I think that is just so important to make sure that a financial press that is already biased against supply side economics is already biased against conservative economic policy has, has there's some pushback against that and i think that was lacking with with the rollout of the trust tax plan in uh, back in september tyler that's that's interesting let's go down this rabbit hole just for a minute or two about this differential in the think tank culture is it that um the British think tanks and academia, they lost their way. They forgot what Thatcher was able to accomplish or was it was it a miracle? Like, why is it that they weren't prime? Was it an oversight and there were actually people there or is this a failure of investment on the part of right of center, um, you know, thinkers and, and uh, money people to support a, a robust think tank uh, culture over there that can support uh, tax cuts and conservative economic policy? It's, a, it's an interesting question, Joe, and it's one I've thought a, a bit about, started to think a bit about, because they are, there are some fantastic outfits, research outfits, think tank outfits over there, including but not limited to the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Adam Smith Institute, the Taxpayers Alliance. They're a lot smaller than in the U.S., uh, I mean, their 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 budgets, their staff are dwarfed by the likes of Cato or Heritage or AEI or Brookings. Uh, Brookings being on the left, of course. Um, you know, but sizes and everything. I, I think one one thing that the likes of AEI and Heritage and Tax Foundation, perhaps Tax Foundation especially, have going for them is they have the the technical infrastructure in place to produce very quickly good estimates of the effects of, of conservative tax policy. I mean, tax, tax Foundation is just so on top of this stuff. And I know that the Taxpayers Alliance over in the UK are working to try to come up with that capability, but you know they're not yet there yet and they're still working on the fundraising. But I think that's going to be important for, for UK policymaking going forward, because otherwise you just get the OBR, you, you just get the financial press 
and and policymakers and politicians over there just running with these these static cost estimates right. put out by the OBR, which which we know are wrong. I mean, we know they are wrong because there is macroeconomic feedback. So let's. Uh, this is probably a good place right here to uh, move on to our next segment. We'll take a break. And we'll talk about the United States economic outlook and maybe some of the lessons learned from what uh, Britain just went through and what they're facing. If that makes sense to you, we'll just take a quick break. Sounds good. Great. DCEKG will be right back. (laughs) 